Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 29th of April 2015, and I'm very pleased to be able to welcome to the program Simon Crims of Crims.com, who joins us all the way from Japan to discuss with us his new and very intriguing book, Roller Dog, all about Humphrey the Roller Skating Dog which we'll have quite a bit to say about in just a moment. Simon Crims is an English teacher and voluntarist born in the US and raised in Australia who has lived and worked in Japan since 2004. He began writing books for children in 2006 after becoming aware of the questions surrounding the official account of 9-11. And his first book, Roller Dog, is, and I'm going to quote here, designed for little people growing up in the brave new world order of the 21st century, unquote. Simon, thanks for joining us. Good to be speaking to you. No, thank you, Julian. Well, it's great to be speaking to you after such a long time communicating by email because uh, is it a year or perhaps two years since we uh, you communicated with me and I think you told me at the time you were going to write a book? Yeah, yeah, it was like two years ago, right? I think, yeah. <laughs> it was the, yeah, two years ago. Amazing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, thank you for sending me a copy of that book, which you sent quite a few months ago, actually, now, but it was a couple of months ago, three months ago, and I found it very fascinating myself, and my daughter has expressed a great deal of interest in it as well, and uh, she's 11 now, so she's kind of getting beyond the stage of being really fascinated by Humphrey, the roller skating dog, but because, you know, she finds him funny and cute, of course, um, but she's certainly amused by and uh, intrigued by your, your really excellent illustrations. I think she understands some of it. Some of those things we've talked about as, as a family, but there are specific references that she really doesn't get yet. But I guess in a way, that's one of the strengths of the book. You know, as she, as she gets older, she will find more and more as even I as an, an adult. And I look in those illustrations and I find more and more things that I, I think, heavens above, I, you know, I missed that the first time around. And so it's a it's a very intriguing and enticing book in some ways. You want to keep going back to it. So um, I've got the copy here in front of me and... Obviously, it's got the picture of Roller Dog on the front, masses of different colours and symbols, and I'm sure there are all sorts of meanings to that that I'm not picking up on. As I go into the book, you find the story, which seems just like a, a normal children's story, on the left page, and then on the right page accompanying it, you have this fantastic illustration that you've created, and this pattern goes on throughout the book. And it's very much as if the left-hand side is very much for the children, and the right-hand side is for the children, but there's such a depth of symbolism <laughs> in there that you keep on going back thinking, just a minute, is that really for children? I and mean, we will come on to that in a minute. I want to ask you quite a few things about that, and it's really intriguing, as I keep using that word, but that is very true. So give us you know, an impression of what you're actually doing with this book. Well, I think you're right in your impression of it. The story really doesn't fit the pictures, actually, in a way. I mean, <laughs> that's quite intentional, actually. I mean, um, I wrote the book in summer 2008. And at that time, I was just a, a rabid 9-11 truther. And I, I uh, really felt that 9-11 was the be-all and end-all of everything. And it was around that time that I started uh, getting into other things. And so the book was written, the text was written, and as I did the pictures, it was really part of my own learning process. Um, the, the pictures actually developed as my own understanding of politics, deep politics, expanded. So that is one of the main reasons for this sort of disconnect between the text and the pictures, is that the, 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 the story was written long before I actually really understood, well, what I understand now. 
Okay, it's not true, though, to say there's a total disconnect between the two, is there? Because there's certainly, you can see it, when you're reading the story, you can see how the picture does relate to what's going on. And yet it is true that there are so many extra things within the picture, so many references beyond just the story. That, I can relate to what you're saying there, but actually that's part of the book's charm and its effectiveness, because you want to keep going back to it and finding things that are tangential, but nevertheless fit the whole message of the book. And I suppose that's really what I'm asking here is, what would you say is the whole message of the book as a created artifact now that actually sits here on the table? What do you think it's actually doing? Uh, I guess look past the surface is the main message. Mm. I mean, really look past what is um, blazing in front of your eyes. Look at the details and try to understand things at a deeper level, I guess. Yeah. Well, it certainly invites us to do that. There's no way you can just look at it in a surface way. You have to look at the detail. So you say that it was kind of prompted by your coming to have concerns about the official 9-11 narrative. Do you want to tell us about when that started and what kind of questions prompted you to begin looking into that? Um, Yeah. uh, I mean, I I actually was in the Australian Army before I came to Japan. I was a part-time Army person, Uh so not full-time. And I was born in the United States, so I have an American citizenship. But regardless of that, I I think 9-11 had a a major effect on all Anglo-American people, or at least the cultures we exist in. So I was really, when when I started to question 9-11 back in Australia, I mean, it was actually, I I originally thought, uh, I had some funny funny ideas. I I, I thought, you know, the government had let it happen or or something like that, you know. Um, yes, I think that was my own reaction when I, I looked at these, uh, you know, TV pictures, and there was something unreal about the whole thing. It looked like it was staged, and sort of like some sort of Hollywood thing I was looking at, rather than news reporting. And there was that sense of, well, if there is something fishy going on here, maybe it's been permitted in some way. That was my first kind of reaction to it. Of course, I shelved that, as I've said in in uh, podcasts. Yeah, I think when when you get into the science of the collapses, that. Uh theory really just falls by the wayside, right? I agree, yes. Yeah. So coming from that mindset, I guess it's like a, you know, I don't know, a non-smoker. I mean, a smoker who's been smoking for a while, generally a more anti-smoking than than somebody who's never smoked, right? I don't know. It's not a particularly good analogy, but I mean, yeah, being fully brainwashed when you wake up, I mean, you tend to be more passionate about spreading these ideas than than you would if you were fairly non-committal to begin with. Hmm. So, after coming to Japan and having internet, it really allowed me to explore a lot more. Really, really just drove me to, um, to try, fight back against this sort of well, matrix of lies, I guess. Mm-hmm. And did you find that by getting interested in questioning that subject that it led to opening up a can of worms? And when people talk about going down the rabbit hole, did you find there were other subjects that you thought, oh, heavens, I, haven't, I've, I now have to think about that in a different way as well? Uh, no, for the first three years, I was a real jerk. Um, <laughs> I just learned a lot about 9-11 and I went around arguing with people. And I mean, I, I, I've forgotten most of it now, but I used to be able to, you know, tell you how many support beams there were in the World Trade Center and instructional uh, stuff and all this stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, it wasn't until 2008 with the economic crisis and the mainstream media saying that nobody predicted this would happen that I started um, really questioning uh, more deeply about the structure of the financial and political systems. And um, 
that that led me to start doing the Roller Dog book. I mean, previous to that, I'd been working on a book solely about 9-11, solely about the collapse of the World Trade Center, really. Yeah. And um, So that, that was a book aimed at adults, presumably? Uh, it's the same thing. I mean, aimed at children with the, I mean, quite clear message that it's about 9-11. And, and that book right. will come in the future. Mm-hmm. And why, why did you think of addressing this to children? What was the, uh, the creative impetus for you to do things that way? I, I actually didn't have a skill set to be able to do anything else in a way. I can draw. And it's really important to focus on children because that is how we all, I mean, we talk about waking up. Waking up from what? I mean, waking up for us from a sleep which has been induced in us through our childhood. So, I mean, if we can help to create a generation of, uh, of people who are not sort of handicapped in that way, we will be able to have a larger effect on society. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought, actually. Yes, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, initially, when you told me about the book, I hadn't really thought of it in quite those terms. So a kind of clearing room for clarity of thought, is that the kind of motivation? I, I don't think the Roller Dog book does that, uh, create clarity. I hope the next book will be more sort of in, in that vein. I think, I mean, the one really important thing, instead of sort of like trying to teach children, like uh, these are lies or this is the truth or whatever, is just generally creating a more questioning mindset within people. Yeah, I mean, right at the beginning of the book, you have this fantastic quote, and I don't know whether it originates with you or whether you've taken it from somewhere. Um, you know the one I mean, but I'm going to say because uh, nobody else knows just at the moment. And it's uh, believe nothing no matter where you read it or who has said it, not even if I have said it, unless it agrees with your own reason and your own common sense. And there Humphrey the dog is painting this on a wall. And that's right at the beginning of your book. So obviously that's going to help us navigate through the pages. Would you say that that's essentially what the book is about? Well, first off, I'm really pleased that you got the believe nothing thing. Because so many people <laughs> miss that uh, because, the, I mean, the, the believe nothing thing is obviously within the picture and not the text itself. Um, yes. That quote is attributed to the Buddha. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's very important to, to, to well, you, it's just basically if you boil it down, it's saying use your own brain, right? Use your brain. Absolutely. I really do like the quote, actually, because it's not saying, I mean, if you just left it there as believe nothing, I would have you know, been arguing with you because <laughs> we, obviously with the, we, we have to believe things in order to you know, ex- exist in this world. But to, obviously it carries on no, no matter where you read it, who has said it, not even if I have said it, which is interesting, unless it agrees with your own reason and your own common sense. So you seem to be saying something like there are sources of information that can come to us and we've got to be humble about it and not say that we know everything but nevertheless the final arbiter is always the center of our being and we've actually got to pass that information and if it at no point makes sense to us we've got to reject it because otherwise there's a power that's sort of treading on us and and uh, removing us out of the picture i mean that's how i read what it says there yeah and we all have been trained i mean through schooling to believe authority believe what larger or or bigger entities tell us and um yeah i mean it's it's very dangerous i mean we can see this from history right well it's interesting because i mentioned that to my daughter and my my daughter had some trouble reading the believe nothing but she got it she thought actually it said in the in in the middle because there's a a long vertical gray line that makes it look like believe in nothing (laughs) Uh, but she, she worked it out and then uh, she, she got the whole quote there and then she reminded me of something that happened at her school where 
uh, her teacher, and this is absolutely amazing, I hardly believe it myself, but it's, it's corroborated by another one of her friends at school, was trying to tell the class that the moon is bigger than the earth. Wow. <laughs> and uh, my daughter and her friend were saying, no, this isn't right. And they went to the internet. And of course, obviously, the teacher was wrong. And it wasn't a joke. The teacher did seem to really think this. And uh, the, the teacher didn't like it being challenged. She had to admit in the end that she was wrong. But I think how great that was. really quite bizarre. How great yeah. it was that those two kids stuck to their guns, you know. We know this is wrong. Yeah. It doesn't fit with what we know to be true. So we're not just going to say, okay, you're the teacher, you must know, we're going to shut our brains down. They did the opposite, challenged her, you know, and everybody benefited from that experience. At 11 years old, you're obviously doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> as a parent, I think. Wait, is, that, is that a government school or what was that? It is a government school. That's right. Yeah. It's a good school, actually. It's just perhaps not the, the greatest teacher in the school, but <laughs> by and large, it's a good school. And, of course, everybody has, you know, their sort of blind spots. But that was one of the teacher's blind spots. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that my daughter and her friend sorted that one out. And it fits so much with that quote. Um, I suppose, really, one of the main things I wanted to ask you was about the audience for this book. Because, uh, as I said before, when you first come to it, a you know, children's book on one side, the sort of deep symbols on the other side, which can be appreciated by children, but obviously invites a lot more uh, scrutiny from adults. So there's the whole question of dealing with fearful subjects. I mean, my daughter reading it through picked up that there was something kind of disturbing about the subject matter of the pictures but it didn't disturb her i mean i did sort of push her on this point actually you know said would any of this give you nightmares and she said oh no no but you can pick up that there's something unpleasant about the pictures and what's going oh yeah clearly yes it's unpleasant but it but it doesn't disturb you no 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 it doesn't disturb me now what i find interesting is that i think you've managed to achieve that did you consciously have a strategy of actually going about that in order to achieve that i think quite remarkable result Yes, actually, I did. Um, color, use of color. Mm. If you look at some of these pictures, if they were sort of more macabre, more black, black and white, or, or, or very basic colors, they would be much more scary. Yeah. I purposely tried to make them very, very colorful. I mean, in the children's minds, I think that does detract from the fear. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I've just, I've just picked out a page here at random, and it's a very post-apocalyptic kind of vision of, you know, the street is all run down and the buildings are derelict. But within that picture, which could be quite scary, it isn't at all scary, because you say because of the colours and also the fact that the characters are animals and they're <laughs> playing their instruments in the street. And, and uh, so it has a, a very... I don't know, almost like a Scooby-Doo-ish kind of cartoon feel to it. So that at the same time of, of delivering quite a disturbing message, it's also tickling the eyes at the same time. So I can understand exactly what you mean there. It's actually one of my favourites, that one. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, not at all. However, although that is true for nearly all of the pictures, there is one, I'm going to find it here. Now, this is where you have the... This is the Fed, isn't it? This is towards the end of the book. And... You have money being produced at a, gr a great rate and uh, hyperinflation and all the money's being thrown into the streets and society falling apart. But on the right-hand side of the page, it gets to a point where it looks like some of these animals are being hanged and the, the building is burning down. And at that point, that, I mean, I did ask my daughter about this. And again, she didn't seem to be frightened by this, but she did pick this out as being a particularly vivid and 
as I say, abstractly disturbing image. Now, do you feel that you've got the balance right with this page? Because I just wonder whether some children might be disturbed by this. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I guess they probably would be. But um, I, I like your daughter's reaction. <laughs> um, yeah. I've tried to use symbology which exists in our culture in, in that picture. Um, you can probably see the pigs hanging. And, I mean, hanging was always, I, I believe, in ancient culture done as a punishment for greed, avarice, right? Uh-huh. So, I, I mean, I tried to use elements which exist within the culture already to give the pictures more power. Mm. The crosses at the bottom, there's one cross, and then there are two other, two other crosses which form a uh, Masonic symbol. I mean, I've got no idea if the Freemasons are behind the Fed or anything, but I mean, I just like to throw that stuff in there. Okay. See, there's another one that I didn't pick up on. Yeah, there's so many of them. It's a, it's quite incredible, actually. How long did this take you to do, did you say? Six and a half years. Yeah. 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 Well, I can kind of believe that because there is just so much. And there are many things that I wanted to ask you about, actually. I mean, here you have Humphrey, the roller skating dog, before he gets his roller skates on, um, he's sitting, I don't know, oh, it's in, of course, it's in New York, isn't it? It's very, very snowy, and he's very cold, and he's so cold that he has to put his tail in the microwave to heat it up. (laughs) Um, And he's looking through the window at uh, this wonderful sign that says, come to California, and of course, there's a picture of the sun and the, the beautiful sea, and he's longing to have some warmth and some relaxation. And as he's sitting there in the window looking at this, he's reading a number of books here, some of which I recognize. Um, So he has uh, Emmanuel Goldstein's The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. He's reading some Murray Rothbard. Um, He's got Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley open and uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. So he's, he's obviously got certain kinds of things in his mind there, wondering about the state of the world. And with, with a mug saying, it's a dog's life. <laughs> and when you turn the page, he's about to put his roller skates on to presumably escape from this situation, being enticed by a better life down the road, an interesting road we might talk about in a minute. And as he looks through the window of the door, you have what looks to me like the Twin Towers and Building 7. Have I got that right? That's correct, yep. And the window does form a target, right? It does indeed. And underneath that, you have two characters. Are they Japanese characters on the door? Yes, uh, that's Shinjutsu, which is truth. So uh, truth in English, uh, uh, going through the door of truth. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I'd wondered what that was. <laughs> and uh, as we turn the next page, he's roller skating away from New York City along the highway. And as he does so, he goes through this sort of industrial area with uh, a steel factory, I think, on one side of the road. And on the other side, we have a warehouse that contains nanothermite, which is rather interesting. My daughter certainly didn't pick up on that, but I did immediately. Did, did your daughter notice the shadows? No, I didn't notice the shadows either. I can see them now. You've pointed them out. The shadows of buildings that are no longer there. Yes. And on his journey, because he meets a lot of different characters, all of whom represent various problems with the current order, and one of the problems is this congressman person who appears, who is a toad. <laughs> and it's interesting what he's wearing, because he was wearing two badges, which on the face of it seem contradictory. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? I mean, it's, I don't think it's contradictory to you and I, or the people who are listening to this podcast, Julian. But yeah, no, um, no. yeah, he's wearing the Republican elephant and the Democrat donkey badges. Yeah, and I mean, th- th- this... 
I think links into the later picture, which is in San Francisco, of, of you know, pick your pre-selected masters. Um, Noam Chomsky's written a lot about this. Very little difference between the two major parties, as we know. I mean, and uh, if you go past that page, you see the car which he's driving in, which is, is a corporatist sort of fascistic conglomerate government run. I mean, just uh, corporations, large corporations in cooperation with government driving the society to, um, well, what we call a new world order or whatever you want to call it. Sure, that's very powerful, actually, because at the back of his limousine he has on in the back window, it says, the United States Congress, owned and operated by... And then the whole of the back of the car has all these stickers plastered all over it with all sorts of things. It could take you half an hour to look at and and, and decode what some of those things are. Um, And uh, what are some of my favorite ones here? Um, Groupthink Mass Media Corps. Old, fat, bald, and greedy incorporated. I like that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And even Bilderberg appears. And I'm so glad that you had a reference here to Soylent Green. SG. Well done for getting that one in. (laughs) Mockingbird Media Corporation. I thought that one was priceless. Mm. And uh, one that my daughter picked up on was Google All Your Data. Yeah. And she said to me, ah, yeah, so that means they're looking at all your data because Google means to look at, doesn't it? And I thought, mm, you got it spot on. <laughs> right. Thank you. Um, and this car is now going in through this gate where there's a wall with CCTV cameras and barbed wire over the top and a couple of lookout points with a load of pigs with guns, and uh, which says liberty and justice. And they're the other side of this wall where you've got Capitol Hill. Uh, loads of lovely trees, the other side of this wall, and the congressman is going in through into this uh, nice sort of parkland, which is all protected. And on the outside here, if you certainly if you turn the page, then you see the whole of the society breaking down, which is the picture that I drew attention to before. And again, I have to say, my daughter did pick up on this, and I was very pleased about this, that there was a kind of protected area that this politician type belonged to, and yet there was the sort of everybody else outside the wall suffering from the system. And I find it very clever the way you've done this, because on one side you sort of pose a question, and then when you turn the page, then it's kind of answered, and then you get to the next question on the next page, and then it's kind of answered when you turn another page. So I like the way that works very much. Did you consciously, right from the beginning, decide to do it in that kind of way? I'd like to say yes, but (laughs) no. Yeah, Your daughter sounds very intelligent, Julian. That's great. That's great. yeah, I, I obviously did try to create that sort of that protected oasis or uh, what's that movie? Um, I saw it recently with Matt Damon. God, I forget the name. But uh, people are living in a space station, uh, having a utopian world in a space station. Everybody on Earth is having a horrible time. Uh, I forget the name. But, yeah, that, that idea of, of basically a split in society, the split in the economy, hmm. which very clearly has happened in America. I see it elements of it in Japan, but not so strongly. A hollowing out of the the bridge between the rulers and those who are ruled, I think. Some people call it the death of the middle class or whatever you want to term it. Yes, and as I say, uh, th- thank you for the compliment about my daughter. <laughs> she did pick up on that. And what, one of the things that really annoyed her, and again, this is not annoyed her about the book, but annoyed her about the characters inside the book, um, was this kind of um, bear character. I've just turned to him here. Uh, because of the things that are actually written on his lorry, and he's uh, so he's a truck driver, and he's got all these genetically modified foods that he's uh, trucking around the place. And on his on, on the front, um, what does it say? It says, "Reading is gay." 
And she read that. She said, what? What? She loves reading, you see. So she was really outraged by the fact that he had, had this there. And also where it says, you're stupid on the front, spelt wrongly. <laughs> so there are loads of wonderful gags in here. What, what kind of uh, person are you, you depicting there, would you say? Uh, well, someone who's very deeply within the Matrix. I mean, I, I think Americans watch latest statistics were 32 or 34 hours of television a week. It's over four hours a day. Um, yeah, it's bad in the UK too. Yeah, I mean, many people have talked about this and, and how television puts you into a, a, a kind of uh, an alpha wave state, a state of deep relaxation and, and um, sort of meditative contemplation. Yeah, so I mean, people who, who are unable to think. I, I think well, it's less than 5% of people read books now. By, by reading, you are able to really get a deeper view of people, other people's lives, other people's thoughts, and develop empathy in the same way. Um, I guess the person I'm trying to depict there is, is really somebody who is um, anti-intellectualism at its, at its peak, in a way. Right. Yeah, and who's sort of protecting themselves by criticising others for engaging in any kind of intellectual activity. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you can see this. I mean, it's it's really quite dominant in in Western culture now. Well, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about, really, because here at uh, the Mind Renewed, I've developed a well, not exactly a series on the arts, but you know, it's it's part of what I do, and so I reference various interviews as being you know connected to the arts in various ways. So I'm interested in the way that the arts can speak about truth, you know, in the widest sense. And of course, your book fits into this art promoting truth um now when i look at it i see it as kind of standing in the tradition of political cartoon and caricature did you see what you were doing as standing in that kind of tradition oh uh, yes absolutely there's a british author raymond briggs he, he wrote a book uh the iron woman and the tin pot general it's about the falklands war and he also wrote a really quite chilling book called where the wind blows i think um, which is about an old couple who are slowly dying after a, a nuclear apocalypse. Yes, I have come across that one. Yes, indeed. So was it the actual illustration medium of getting over his message that appealed to you? Well, I, as I said before, I, I didn't really have another option. I mean, I, I can't do what James Corbett or what you do. I can draw. And so... <laughs> I, said, I can't do what you do. I've always been extremely bad at drawing. And that's not what most people think, you know, because I'm a musician by training. So they think, oh, you're, in inverted commas, an arty person and assume that you're good at all the arts. And I, I'm not, actually. <laughs> I've not been naturally somebody who's gifted at uh, writing poetry or drawing. It's a, for somebody like yourself who, who is clearly gifted in that, I think, well, um, I, I envy you that talent, actually. Well, I've been playing guitar for 20 years and I can play, like, a few chords. So <laughs> I completely understand, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good job that we all have our different talents because then we can <laughs> join together, indeed, to be more effective. So, I mean, why do you think that it's uh, so important to encourage the arts to be involved in, uh, you know, getting across the message of truth in in various ways i mean isn't it just sufficient to have an article or um you know issue a podcast or somebody talking why do we need to involve the arts uh, because art can break through people's bias and art can have a very deep visceral effect on people i'm sure you're aware of these studies of um what's it called confirmation bias right when people are exposed to information which differs from their previously determined conclusions it actually pushes them 
deeper into those conclusions. Right, okay, so they, they seek out information that uh, support what they already believe. They do that, but also, I mean, even if they see information which differs from what they already believe, it does tend to drive a lot of people towards believing their prior beliefs more strongly. Mm-hmm. And so how does the arts engage with that problem? Because it's subliminal. It it, it sort of gets into people's heads without confronting them directly. You know, people, when they're watching television, apparently um, they're watching a drama and their brain will be defenseless in a way. They're just absorbing the messages and, and being kind of programmed in a way. And then an advert will come on and their brain will switch into a... Uh, well, this is what I've heard, switch into another state where they're sort of filtering information more. And whenever we listen to news, our brains are much more active than if we're watching drama uh, or or watching a movie. And so art really works in that way to get through those sort of initial barriers in people's um, intellectual defences or or cultural defences. Clearly, we're not just uh, sort of robots, are we? We we do have, you know, feelings and uh, and longings and intuitions and aesthetic sensibilities, and so truth has to come at us as whole people. Otherwise, we're sort of fragmented. So, I personally agree that art is very important to do that to address us as as whole human beings. So, if a message comes to us in that whole way, we're more likely to react to it in an, an appropriate way. Um, what I like about this work is that it, it meets people on so many different levels of experience and different age groups as well. So I, th- I think in some ways to call it a children's book is a bit of a misnomer, isn't it, really? It's a, it's a kind of everybody's book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did try to do that. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. When people ask me what is the intended audience, um, I mean, obviously children, but also adults, and I hoped to to sort of, yeah, like you said, create it in a multi-layered way so that people who were already aware of some things were, would be able to enjoy it and people who had no knowledge of it would, you know, it would raise questions in their minds. Well, when I initially started, I guess, trying to understand my own work, what I was doing, I did sort of think that um, I could use the natural inquisitive mind of children to drive parents to do their own research. Well, I'll, su- I'll suggest one that my daughter laughed at, and I can mm. imagine how that could open up questions. So here it is. You've got the, the lorry I mentioned before carrying the uh, fresh genetically modified foods. And on the side of it, you have Harry the Hamster who says, and I quote, so delicious, I don't even care about the sterility and the hair growing in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you Google sterility and hair growing in mouth of hamsters, you will find uh, a study done by Russians, I believe, uh, of uh, three generations of hamsters who are fed with genetically uh, modified corn, I think, or soy, I can't remember, and and did get uh, hair growing in their mouths, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I did try to make it in that way so that if children question, or, or what does this mean, I, I hope... Uh, an adult who who was conscientious enough to answer the child's question properly would go, go and Google that and and find out, or or even um, start page it. Yeah, they are please. Yeah, <laughs> wow, it's uh, they've really got into our language, hey? Yeah, please start page or, or X quick it. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, as as the book goes on, of course, we get eventually to the position where 
um, they all run out of oil and these various characters and they just stand there on the road and they can't get anywhere but of course Humphrey the roller dog has got his roller skates and uh, he knows what he's about and he's amazingly unaffected by all these people he's bumped into during his quite, quite potentially dangerous journey through this kind of dystopian uh, world that's in view here and he goes along this straight road towards the sun which was his original target come to California it was a great big picture of the sun so he's going off towards the sun and then when I turn the page as I say it's in these little couplets of pages isn't it so the question that's on that page of where is he going to when he follows the sun is answered on the next page where there's a beach and there's a whole load of characters sitting there including Humphrey reading your book which is uh, an interesting <laughs> self-reference which my daughter picked up again she said oh I love things that do that she said <laughs> um, so that was a great a great touch he's reading your own book he, he's got a glass of beer or something there and on the beach um, with his girlfriend and everybody looks extremely happy and um, there's the appearance of this black and yellow flag all over the place so what's going on here a voluntarist utopia. <laughs> I guess, I mean, the, the previous double page pictures are where I expect things to go from here. Um, and that is my hope for the distant future where, I mean, we can develop a society where freedom of choice and freedom of the individual become the, the mainstay. So this is a, a voluntarist ideal that you have presented here and uh, I think the thing that comes over with it is the freedom of the individual because you have so many different types of characters here of course this is accentuated by the fact that they're all different animals <laughs> they look so different and they're doing their their own things and interacting with each other as they wish to or not not doing so there's no picture of coercion in here whatsoever and I noticed that you have um, a building in the background that says uh, renaissance so this is a presumably a kind of new birth into a era of hope that you're presenting here um how, what do you think do you think we're going to get there or are you pessimistic uh well not in my lifetime no i don't think so but um uh yeah i i, I don't think humanity's done I, I don't think we've stopped um i i do i do I, i'm actually quite positive that in the distant future there there will be uh uh, a, a more of a drive towards um, these kind of ideals. I also wanted to ask you to give us a brief view of what voluntarism actually is, because it's a word that's used not all that often, but occasionally it pops up, but I rarely hear it defined. Could you give us a kind of impression of what it means? Yeah, um, yeah voluntarism for me is, is a state where there is no actual limitations on choice, and that includes the governing authority, where uh, functions which are performed by government now will uh, be performed by the free market. And this just sounds insane when you hear it for the first time if you have not really sort of come across these ideas before because we've been conditioned into that mindset. But, I mean, if people want to know more about volunteerism, there are much better people to, to define it uh, than I can do. So... I will I will allow your audience or I will ask your audience to please go and do that. Well, it's not something that I've looked into really at all. So I don't wish to comment on it very much, except that from what I've picked up, would I be right in saying that it goes hand in hand with a anarchistic view of politics? So in that sophisticated view of the argued philosophical position of anarchism? 
where that would be a view of the political order, whereas voluntarism would be a kind of anthropological foundation for that by seeing mm. sovereignty as really located in each individual person. Would, that, would you see that as the kind of foundation for that wider anarcho-political thought? Yes, you defined it perfectly, yeah. Uh, it is the, the... I mean, I don't like to... I mean, sovereign citizen sounds so... Um, has certain images which have already been sort of propagated in people's minds. But yeah, it's mm. the ability of the individual to choose and that ability being unlimited. Yeah. And in fact, you've corrected me because from a theological perspective, I wouldn't see absolute sovereignty as located in each individual because that would be to dethrone God, as, as it were. So you've kind of corrected me in, in the way I expressed it. But the idea of absolute choice yeah, I can go along with that. I think we are given radical freedom to choose. And, uh, you know, there are so many ways in which the, the freedoms that we should be able to exercise are stamped out. And uh, I think that's an unhealthy state of affairs. Yeah, I would term God as natural law in this, in this in instance. And so people hear the word anarchy and they think about, you know, just people with silly haircuts and, and blood on the streets. Yes. <laughs> um, which is, which yeah, is no, they're, they're, presumably, this is this is part of the conditioning, so that one doesn't even even begin to look at such ideas and give them no credibility whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, anarchism is just just such a heavily loaded word. I mean, t to me, like I said, it, it boils down to freedom of choice. Well, as I say, I think it really is a very good book, um, very enjoyable to engage with, especially, uh, you know, with my daughter, I've enjoyed it very much. Loads and loads of levels as we've been talking about, you can, I think you would go back time and time and time again, and you would find more and more in there. So I think it's a great work that you've done here. And I do encourage you with your next one as well. And I hope you, you keep going and going. And to help do that, of course, I would encourage people to go to your website, which is, I believe, crims.com, where you can get this book in various forms, can't you? You can get it as a free PDF, which I really recommend people to do. Please go and share that and, and try to spread it far and wide. And yeah, if if you want to um, support me to write more books, please uh, buy a buy a hardcover, either a soft cover or or buy buy um, one of the the hard copies, soft cover or hardcover. Great. And uh, of course, if you go and get the PDF first of all, which you say is free, then you can check it for suitability. And I do recommend, as you said, to go and get a hard version of it in one form or other, because as I said to you before the interview, uh, I can't really imagine reading the book with your son or daughter, actually with it presented on a computer. That just wouldn't seem quite right. There's something <laughs> wonderful about flicking through the pages, isn't there, and touching them and going backwards and forwards and, and saying, well, what was that and what was that? And it just wouldn't be the same experience on a, uh, on a laptop or something. Mm. Well, yeah, thank you. Good. So anyway, thanks ever so much, Simon, for speaking with us. I've enjoyed it very much and um, all the very best with your future work. Well, thank you, Julian. Thank you very much for talking with me. It is, I really enjoyed it too.